0: Hi there, and welcome to the oompaul.com podcast. I'm Oli, and for episode 6, I'm very pleased to bring to you a conversation with Art Ruppelt of Mean Kahuna. This podcast is sponsored by the Atlanta Pipe Club. Since 1995, the Atlanta Pipe Club has been a great place for enthusiasts of fine pipes and tobaccos. Stop by and become part of our family. For more information on the Atlanta Pipe Club, follow the link in the Pipe Clubs area at oompaul.com. For this podcast, Art and I met at a little restaurant in Alpharetta, Georgia, which is why you'll hear some background ambiance. The following podcast was recorded on April 25th, 2008. Have a seat, grab a pipe, and stay a while. I hope you enjoy. With me is the very talented, very artistic Art Ruppelt. Art, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Now, Ming Kahuna can be found online at ming-kahuna.com, that's m-i-n-g-k-a-h-u-n-a.com, and Ming Kahuna is, of course, the brand that has been offering up some of the most beautiful and interesting tampers the pipe world has seen since 1998. Art, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you first got started with pipes, and then how you eventually found your way into making tampers.
1: Um, started, my dad was a pipe smoker, as was my grandfather, and, um... I started smoking cigars in the late 80s and started smoking pipes in the mid-90s, about 1994, and basically found a couple of uh, pipe kits around late 1997 and carved a few uh, pipes and took some of the briar from those pipes, the scrap briar, and made a couple of uh, tampers from it and really did nothing much more with it other than creating a a fantasy pipe brand that I called Ming Kahuna, named that for the first two pipes that I had made, uh, the the kit pipes. Then about October of 97, a buddy of mine asked me to make some pistol grips for him for his River 22. And he was who I shared an office with, my law associate. And he said, let's go over to this place that I had found in Cleveland that sold exotic hardwoods and, and, you know, get me some wood. So we drove the 40 miles to the place. and I bought some Bacotti and made some tampers out of it and noticed some acrylic on these shelves there and thought about the acrylic and went back a few days later and bought up some acrylic, about three or four pieces, and sat around for about a week having no idea what to do with the acrylic. And then it hit me. I could make tampers out of it. There wasn't really anything like it going at the time, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I, I made the first um, pocket model. I think it was like October 18th. Ninety-eight Started just making them from there. Um, I sent one off to Trevor Calvert, who thought it was pretty cool. He had some of my pipes up on his webpage, and I had people requesting that I made them pipes. And I said, you know, I'm not a pipe maker. That's Trevor's deal. And started making them, and came out with two models originally, a pocket model and a table model, which was a longer version. And created some brochures and advertised it on ASP, and people... A couple hundred people requested the brochures, and then I got uh, to be good friends with a gentleman by the name of Ray Newton, who's who's big in the pipe world. He's kind of moved on and doing other things right now, traveling a lot. But Ray was uh, designing my first webpage, which went up in, I think, January of 99. Then Chuck Stanion got a hold of me and said, I'd like to put your tampers in the pipe stuff section. Sent him two a table model and a pocket model, and he photographed them on a log in his backyard and the orders just started pouring in. Things have been good before that, but I'm still getting orders from people seeing the first tampers that I had in pipe stuff. I've had them in there twice. Um, and then things just took off and I started getting materials together and created pick models and external pick models and things just took off. And I was doing this part-time while I was practicing a lot, full-time. I was working full-time pretty much with both jobs for about the past seven years until I moved to Georgia, which brings me here from from Cleveland, and uh, sitting here with you today. So do you still practice law? No, well, it's funny. When when I moved down here, it'll be three years in June, um, I had decided that I might practice law down here, but as I was phasing out my practice in Cleveland and going back up to Cleveland to handle cases while I was living here, I was taking more of Maine Kahuna and filling it in to fill up the void as I was emptying out, finishing up my practice. And I found that things weren't changing much. It was just an allocation of time difference. So right now, I have one stupid case that just won't go away. So I have one last case in Cleveland. I'll probably get my license here in Georgia as we have reciprocity. But other than that, right now I'm doing... Ming uh, full-time. And I really don't miss law too much at all. I, I practiced for 23 years, 24, something like that. I enjoyed it. I was pretty pretty darn good at it. But, you know, at this point in my life, I'm going to be 50. I really don't want to be spending a lot of time away from my family litigating and doing a lot of the things that lawyers have to do. And, and being an artist is just incredibly fun and a great way to um, to do things. So, I guess I'm, I'm still a lawyer and I'll always have my license, but uh, I call myself retired as a lawyer.
0: Okay, so you're a full-time artist. Yeah,
1: and I, I also do, um, and, and this isn't something that I generally talk about in the pipe world, is I, I also sculpt um, using large blocks of full-size acrylics, anywhere from 7 inches tall to you know shelf size. And, and that's part of my what I call the Ming Destiny line.
0: Tell us a little bit more about the Ming
1: Destiny line. That's just, you know, there's the old thing in The Godfather where Michael says to Connie, he goes, says, I'm going to be legit in five years. Well, when I started Ming kahun, I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to be legit in five years, kidding around the same way, meaning that I would move into non-pipe art, which it was basically five years when I started it. And it's, it's basically creating things that are non-pipe related. What I'm doing is taking a lot of the shapes that I've, you know, in the past 10 years I've created hundreds of shapes and you know, they have names and all kinds of crazy things. And I'm moving into taking those shapes and then scaling them up into full-size sculpture. Most of them have been sold to non-pipe people. A lot of them aren't even aware that kahuna exists. And, um, they just think it's these neat sculptures. Yeah. But these are actually tamper shapes. Like um, yesterday, I just carved uh, my flux shape in a full-size sculpture, and uh, we'll be doing a few of those. I'm, I'm selling them pretty much by word of mouth through through some, some collectors, and I hope to be doing some art shows around Atlanta. The Alpharetta show last weekend would have been good. The Norcross show, and maybe the uh, Dogwood Festival. Yeah. Um, I won't be dealing with dealers here because they take like 70% which yeah. is outrageous Yeah. and then that's pretty much what that is my, my first love and passion is, of course is pipe tampers and the two are so interrelated I'm allocating a little more time uh, towards the quote unquote what I call legitimate art although I consider um, what I do with Minkahuna to be nothing but art there's an old notion that art cannot be functional that it has to be purely aesthetic and I, I, I think that's a bunch of garbage
0: your work is obviously very sculptural, and, you know, besides the practicality of these pieces, they're small handmade sculptures, and that's that's really what they are, and what's really wonderful about this is that, you know, with typical sculptures, you put them in a display case, you put them on a pedestal, and you enjoy them from a distance, but the tampers that you make, this work really allows us to do something that rarely happens with, with sculpture, which is, you know, we get to actually touch it, we get to actually use it in a, in a practical way and this tactile connection I think allows us to connect with that art more deeply than we normally would be able to
1: I'd I say you're, you're 100% right about that my motto and it's a, it's a play on my first name also but it's always been art that works it's always been about a synthesis or a, um, a combination of form and function some tampers there's a bit of a compromise on function in that it's wider at the bottom and has to be used in a larger pipe but every tamper is designed with function in mind Um, I generally like to say the first inch and a half is for the pipe and everything above that is for me. So some of my tampers are more practical than others and some collectors will buy what some might see as a little less practical of a shape every tamper that I make is going to be functional in some pipe and that's why I always make it a point in my descriptions to note what size bowl might be the best fit for the tamper, like that Bluto sitting on the table. That's going to be a great tamper in virtually any pipe. Some of the flux shapes that I'm doing now, other than the very narrow bottom ones, those are going to be less so, but the idea is is creating art that works, and that's, that's what I've tried to do. Um, past 10 years.
0: I noticed on your website that Mean Cahoon is dedicated to your mother. Can you tell us about that dedication and how she inspired you?
1: It starts with my dad, I guess. He was always the practical one. He was, you know, go to school, go to business school, wanted me to be a hospital administrator. And I was always very artistic growing up. I always drew and did a lot of artistic things. My mom comes from a a family of artists. My dad actually, who was a dentist, came from a family of craftsmen, home builders uh, and carpenters. And he was a very skilled craftsman himself. Uh, but he always pushed me towards the more practical aspects. Hence, I'm a lawyer. Um, but my mom always pushed me towards, not pushed, but encouraged my artistic aspects. My dad died back in 87, and I started the Ming, obviously, after that. And then my mother just said to me, she said, I think you found something there that you could be very good at and, and love. Run with it. And she always encouraged me and was always very into what I was doing with Minkahoon and always offered her gentle opinion. Um, She always had a pipe tamper that she always held, and held it up pretty much up to the day she died. She died of liver cancer in, I guess it's 1990, October 1999 now. But she was the one that always taught me that you have to do what you love, because if you don't, You know, you're wasting a great gift of life if you're spending your entire life doing something that you despise. And she recognized the the artistic ability in me, and when I had kind of turned my back on it, I think my dad would approve of what I'm doing now, too, because he would have been into it also. Yeah. But my mom was a great lady, and uh, we were extremely close with my dad, but um, extremely close with her as well.
0: What other inspirations would you say you call on when you go to make... Your art.
1: Nature. What I do is mostly asymmetrical. Matter of fact, if a piece other than like that Bluto sitting there is too symmetrical, I will introduce asymmetrical elements to it. My eye and my artistic eye and tastes go to things that are uneven. Um, But my sister, who's an artist, also tells me there's something called occult symmetry. And that is where the balance or the symmetricalness isn't the perfect right, left, up, down, the sameness. It's expressed through flow and balance. So occult symmetry is actually a type of asymmetry, but it gives a feeling of symmetry. Um, I try very hard to to do things that are asymmetrical, and most things in in nature there's a lot of symmetry, but the symmetry is never a perfect symmetry. Um, You'll have a lot of right-left symmetry, but it's always a little bit different. And, And what I try and do is... Try and introduce elements of some tampers, are just obviously asymmetrical, but to do that and not create dissonance. Because if you create dissonance, the shape is all wrong. There has to be the flow and there has to be the balance. Uh, a lot of it's through nature. Um, I actually dream pretty vividly. Uh, a lot of my shapes come from my dreams. The New Heroes was actually a dream where I was designing tampers in my dream when I was able to morph them by will as I was just looking at them in the dream. was what they call a lucid dream. And I was actually, it was like I was on a computer and I was able to change the shape and then I came up with the idea of you know, having a tamper that fits into the palm of your hand. Last night I was up all night designing tampers um, in, in, in a sculpture that I hope to do later today. It can come from clouds. It can come from um, a Star War movie. I, I once saw a ship that gave me an idea it can come from anywhere. Clarence Mickles, or it might be Mickles, I'm not sure how it was pronounced, um, once said that he was coming home from a pipe show and was in a, a urinal, going, sitting down going to the bathroom, and he looked up, and in the pattern and the marble on the door in front of him, he saw a pipe. Well, the Kazi tamper, the first tamper, actually came from a wallpaper pattern in my bathroom as I would sit <laughs> on it. So, yeah, you know, kind of the same thing happened. So
0: inspiration just comes anywhere, from everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, each of your pieces now come with its own ID card and pouch, and these, these ID cards, the new ones, actually have a picture of that piece right on the card,
1: right? Yeah, that was a way to do something I hadn't been able to accomplish and that was to link the piece to the name, to the date, and to the material and the information about it. I've never wanted to sign my work. I don't even like putting a logo in it. Uh, the logos originally weren't even logos. It was a, like a cotter pin on my pick tampers. And people thought that was a logo. That was In case the, the, the bond was to break between the acrylic and the brass, it would be like a cotter pin that would hold it on. And then people said, well, you got to put that on all your tampers because it's your logo. I said, it's not a logo. They said, it is now. So I did that. Um, but I never wanted to do anything more than that because just for me to take something that I've worked that hard and to put my name on it just didn't sit right with me. I understand how people do that, but it just never sat right with me. So the cards offered a way to basically sign my work without signing it. And there's a lot of pieces that I'll just look at and I'll say, I won't even put a logo on it. it just, it's just wrong.
0: I think the, uh, having the card identification like that is, is really, really nice Especially for us collectors, because it's, it gives it a kind of a sense of heirloom quality that will stay with it indefinitely.
1: It was definitely done more with, with collectors in mind because my collect I, for briefly I stopped doing the cards without the uh, photos on them, which I've done pretty much from day one. There's always been a card, and the uproar was just deafening. And collectors <laughs> were saying, "No, you got to do it. You got to do it." Yeah. Uh, and I probably still owe a few people some more cards, but. It was important to them because I'm a collector as well. I collect a number of things. And I understand the collector's mentality, and what I was doing was turning my back on the collector's mentality. And then in putting the photograph on the card, I was looking into my own mentality as a collector and saying, what would I want to see? Because that's what I'm always trying to do, is trying to put myself in other people's shoes and determining you know, what might be of interest to them.
0: What is the branding difference between Ming and moxie
1: good question Ming is just the the tampers that are done with the largest amount of my materials which can be anything from cellulose acetate which is, is a very rare material to acrylic acetate which are more common and are being you know produced pretty widely right now and you, you see a lot of them out there and resins and and, and aluminum and brass tampers when I found the material Called Kneel, which is, I would argue, probably one of the rarest materials in existence. Just very little of it was made, and I have all of it. I think I decided to create a brand around it. It's, it comes in sheets, so it allowed me to express my shapes more laterally uh, rather than perfectly round pieces. I could go off in you know for inches in any direction because I was working from sheets. So I decided to create a brand around it. And then Bali, the second material, came along, which took me by surprise. So those are tampers that are just, I, I do them because I feel like doing them. I do them, I don't care if they sell. If they don't sell, I keep them. Um, I own very few. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I own two. Uh, because they, they all have sold. Um, I used to have a rule that if they went to Chicago or to Richmond and they didn't sell there, I could keep them. Um, but... They really don't go that far uh, so far. And I have quite a strong collector's base based on Caneo and to a little lesser degree Bali. And then Moxie is the use of natural materials. I've been known for plastics for, for a long time, but what most people don't realize is that I've worked extensively with various woods, a lot of mammoth, legal elephant ivory, and uh, bamboo. And that's what is: the use of natural materials I don't know if they're individual brands. There, there's certainly lines. I think of them as brands because my attitude to each is very different. And I like creating the logos and all the fun marketing stuff that goes along with it.
0: And you touched on the name Ming Kahuna at the beginning of the interview very briefly, and that it was named after your first two pipes. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, it was um, March of '797. My wife was out of my wife was out of town and. Uh, My daughter was home sick. So I was able, as as I was a self-employed attorney, I was able to work at home. So I, I was Mr. Dad. And I had bought a couple of pipe kits, three or four, and I decided I'd gotten my work done pretty well and there wasn't much I could do other than being at the office. So as I sat there, I carved some pipes while watching my daughter. The first one I called Kahuna. and It might even be up on my blog, a very Polynesian type of shape. And the second one, at the time, one of my favorite all-time movies is Flash Gordon, and the one was Sam Jones, Max von Sydow, and it was on TV. So I looked at the next pipe and I said, "Well, I got to call this one Ming." And then the one I did after that, I called Flash. And then there was Zarkov. And so a few months later, when I just as a lunch hour doodle, I created a, um, a fantasy pipe brand. I had no intention of making and selling pipes other than what I was doing, and I just did it as a lunch hour doodle and came up with logos and uh, a grading system and all these crazy things, and I said, well, what what would I call the brand? So I took Ming and Kahuna, the first two pipes, and just like the way the name rolled together, Ming Kahuna, and then I put a hyphen in between it, and that's where it came from. Where
0: are those original
1: pipes? No, they're my basement my okay. workshop, yeah. I think kahuna might be up on my blog. Yeah, I've, I've got them all, and I smoke them once in a while. And then I did one that really got to be well-known. It was called Krom, based on the Conan uh, God of Steel. That one is, is a shape that makes women blush. I know there's some Danes who have done some um, what they call the um, the sexual shapes. Well, this thing is just downright, well, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's actually a pretty pipe. I, that was up on Trevor's site, and that caught a lot of people's interest. <laughs> and 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 that's something else with Ming Kahuna is that when I first started carving tampers, I kept on carving a tamper, and I'd go, hm, looks like a penis, and I throw it in the and I throw it in this bucket. And then by the time I got done, yeah, you know, this bucket was just filled of all these foul. Like, and I said, well, wait a minute, it's 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 got to go in. You know, it's the old train in the tunnel. It's It's, right. it's gotta be. You know? So. But yeah, it's, it's it's been the greatest challenge, in the, and, and it's illegal to do that in Georgia to uh, carve those things. So uh, it actually is no kidding. Yeah, you can sell them, but you can't make them in Georgia. Oh, wow. So uh, I I still have a bucket full of them somewhere.
0: <laughs> You'll have to send us some photos <laughs> yeah. of the bucket and uh, maybe of prom yeah. too. Uh, once we get this posted online, you use a lot of different materials in your tampers. What do you find the major differences to be as far as working with the materials as well as the aesthetics involved?
1: Acrylic acetate is a very hard material. This is called acrylic. It's extremely hard. It's twice as hard as briar. I mean, it's, and I know briar varies from piece to piece. It's just extremely hard. When you have darker pieces or a piece that has darker and lighter pigments, there is a grain because the lighter acrylic tends to be softer and the darker tends to be harder. So it can affect how you're carving it. Acrylic acetate or cellulose acetate, CA, is very unique stuff. It's, it's, it's made from wood, it's one of the oldest plastics in existence, created around the turn of the century. And it, it cuts like butter, it melts working, not using it. Um, Some people confuse it with cellulose nitrate, which is the very volatile stuff that film is made out of and pens used to be made out of. That stuff explodes. This is a very stable, wood-based, so it's a very unique stuff to work with, extremely difficult to finish. There are Italian pen companies that their most proprietary secrets in the finishing of cellos acetate. There's one company that apparently has a room full of little old Italian ladies who know the secret. They go in there every day, they lock them in, and they won't even let anybody in, because only these ladies know how to finish it. Wow. I've created my own technique, and it's almost different for every tamper, with the same basic steps that are taken. So it's very unique. Resins, like Art Amber is, is basically a resin uh, you see in pipe stems. That's a little tricky to work with. It's tough to carve, wonderful to sand. Cumberland's tricky too. There's a great variance. I think you start working with your various woods. Um, I don't like to work with a lot of different woods. I like to work with them. Buena Burl some of the box elders, some of the box boxwoods, um There's a few others I've worked with as well. Those, I like working with the very tight-grained woods. The woods that tend to have the least flaws. And Buena Burl can be absolutely incredible. Um, and there certain materials that I won't use for certain shapes because there's, when they get thin they get brittle. Cellulose acetate, you can carve it down to an eighth of an inch thin and bend it like a bow, and it will go back to its original shape. You'd have to keep wiggling it back and forth and spinning it to break it. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the most resilient uh, materials there, there, there is, and it's very warm to the touch. Acrylic is harder to the touch. Over the years, I've come to even collect these materials. You know, there's there's a lot of materials out there today, but a lot of the materials dried up. In 2003, the Italians stopped them from leaving the country. Pen makers were making $10,000 pens, and then the excess material was being sold off to brokers who were shipping it over to the United States. And a guy like me is making a tamper out of it, and it was in a $10,000 pen. So around 2003, 2004, the Italians said, no, nah, it's not leaving the country. So a lot of these materials, the cellulose acetates, a lot of the rare materials, just dried up entirely. I caught the tail end of it, luckily. Even within the same material, different patterns and colors and things can uh, be very, very difficult to work with. And it was also very easy. I have one material that's, that's a... Um, Made by Machicelli in Italy, and it has a styrene component in it to give it the softness. But it melts when you're working it very easy. It will actually spit at me, these little molten globs of material. And uh, I've numerous scars from it, but very difficult to work with. That's why they stopped making it.
0: Now, you use aluminum and brass. I I saw some of the aluminum brass tampers on your site, and they look really, really stunning. How and when did you first
1: start working with aluminum? I've worked with aluminum, making my tampons from it for a long time, pretty much from almost from the beginning. Uh, but I got the idea to make a tamper, which I call the free fall. It's free to fall. If it falls. It has like a buffed out, rusticated finish uh, that you're not really going to notice any damage. And I was hearing people saying, "Yeah, I love my Ming's, but I won't take them out of the house." And I said, well, I'm going to make something you'll take anywhere in the world. So I, I think I started doing that back around, yeah, they sold like hotcakes, the first Chicago show I took them to. It might have been about four years ago. They don't sell as well as they used to. You know, whenever I put them up, they sell. I use a cutting tool to get the rustication, which causes these shavings to fall to the floor. And I like to work barefoot. And you get these little slivers, so I have to really suit up when I work with it. Because I like to Like, like Jeff Folleter I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who usually goes barefoot So Jeff is famous for Being barefoot at the Chicago show <laughs> So those uh, Those aluminum
0: and brass tampers Will probably We won't see a whole lot of those uh, When we do You know We probably ought to get them
1: Well yeah I mean If somebody asks me to make them one I'll do it um, I'm glad to um, But and, and, and I've done internal pick tampers Out of aluminum too Which are kind of cool
0: they're gorgeous. I When I saw them
1: online, I was like, wow, I, I've got to see some of these. I should have brought one. I actually had one in my hand that I was going to bring to show you, but I I put it down. The one I have is crappy, is usually the case.
0: Oh. <laughs> the, uh, would you say the internal pick tampers sell the best? or?
1: Yeah, That's that's unfortunate because they don't. They, they once did, maybe on a three-to-one basis over other tampers. Then 9-11 happened and it reversed itself it turned around and four to one the other way most people want to be able to take a tamper on an airplane, they can pack up their suitcase I've never understood why these don't pack in their suitcase but because of the, the TSA regulations after 9-11 the demand for them just went down to, to next to nothing it's picked up again and I'm actually making and selling a lot of them again but not anywhere near near what I was. Most of my collectors will have one or two pick tampers, the Pug being the most popular, and then the rest of their tampers will be the regular non-pick tampers. I also sell these little stiletto pipe tools that are just handles, you know, carved in fun ways with materials, with, with a pick on it. And they'll have that sitting by their smoking table. So having one pick or internal pick tamper is plenty for them, one or two.
0: Your work sells incredibly quickly. Here we are just days before the Chicago show of 2008. When most people are saving up their pipe and tamper money, and you've got people buying up items you initially planned on
1: bringing to the show, what's your busiest time of year? It used to be Chicago. This year I wasn't going to have much for the show, but I ended up putting together a really, really good inventory for this year. Unfortunately, it's all sold other than what you see on my webpage, and maybe. 10 pieces that will come out over the next couple of weeks. With not having an inventory and with a major expenditure like going to the show I won't be going to Chicago this year um, I've got a daughter starting uh, college next fall so that's money that's going to go towards her tuition um, I enjoy seeing people at the show but I would put maybe 10 campers down on the table and stare at the wall the entire weekend. So uh, my plans are, unfortunately, not to go to Chicago this year. That just happened a few days ago. I would say that the the most busy time of the year, probably in terms of orders, special orders, is probably um, July for some odd reason. July and then maybe a little bit towards October. September can be very slow. And it used to be more with the shows, uh, you'd see more fluxes with less business right before a show. But as pipe shows have kind of maybe backed off a little bit and become less attended, I see pipe shows affecting sales less and less. Chicago still affects a lot, but this year I let it be known that I would sell before and they sold. So,
0: Your customers have a unique opportunity in having a custom tamper made just for them. You've even done some to match pipes. What other kinds of
1: custom orders have you done? I did do one. A customer had a tamper in CUDA, and he wanted Mark Tinsky to put a band in that material on the pipe that, that he was doing for him. So I know Tinsky did one of those to match the pipe. I recently did one based on a Rad Davis pipe. The, the guy had bought the Rad Davis pipe and wanted something with Bacotti and Cumberland, so I did a pug in that. But I've also had customers make some some wild requests. Basically, I have special orders and custom orders. Special orders being when I do a tamper that I might have done before and they want it a different material or a different size or something like it. And then there's custom orders, which is something maybe like somebody shows me a photograph of their Aunt Edna's nose and they want me to make a tamper in that shape. A lot of those types of requests, some of them I'll take, some of them I won't take, mostly because... I need for what they're asking me to do to be consistent with what I would like my work to be seen as. Even though they're the ones that's going to own it, it still has to really flow with what I do. And I've had some interesting requests. Um, I've had a standing request. This is from a very good friend of mine who wants me to do a, a series of tampers based on viruses, starting off with the Ebola virus. There's some really, actually some really neat shapes there to work from. Um, But I've had some interesting requests, and and some of those requests have actually led to tampers that have become ongoing shapes and models. And and most of my business now is special and custom orders to a very, very, very large degree, where I used to maybe discourage that. Now it's it's mostly what I do. What, besides
0: the viruses, what was the craziest custom order request you
1: had? That's probably the craziest. Most people are, are very reasonable, and... And it's one thing that I've, I've always enjoyed very, very much working with people on custom orders and special orders. Something Mark Tinsky actually showed me, I had him do some pipes for me. He made it a lot of fun and enjoyment, and that's what it should be about. This is about fun and enjoyment. Uh, and, and working with being able to work with the artisan, I have found to be rewarding, and it's something I've tried to pass on to my customers. I know you've done some limited editions and even teamed up with some pipe makers in the past. Can you tell me about a couple of those? The primary time that I've, I've worked with another artisan is with my, my friend Tom Eltang. A number of years back, the idea came up. I believe it was Tom's idea to do a uh, four-day set based with four tampers, four mings, and four L-10 pipes uh, in in a beautiful case made by a gentleman in Sweden. It's like a book opening up, based on Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which coincidentally was his music that I carved to. And Tom and I planned this for three years before, you know, going back and forth talking about it, and when we'd see each other. We actually planned the project, and then Tom had the case built, and then he carved the pipes, and I carved the tampers, somewhat based on the pipes, and also in a, my impressions of the seasons. And it was funny because I had just moved to Atlanta and I was having a really hard time with winter because we really don't have a, 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 much of a winter here. And the, the set came out beautifully. I, I've never actually seen the set in person because it went off to the uh, Far East to be sold for you know, probably an incredible amount of money because you know, Tom's sets just go for you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. But just working with Tom was, was just an incredible experience because the man has just in, you know incredible amounts of energy and, 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 and uh, talent and, and, and brilliance. Other than that, I, I also did a two-pipe, two-tamper set with um, Todd Johnson, a couple of tampers, and Blood of Kings. Tell me about the time that you helped out with, you teamed up with another
0: tamper maker. Oh, yeah, maker. yeah.
1: This is um, Paul Tatum who's a pipe maker and I think still is making tampers now and then. Glad you reminded me of that. Um, This is back when J.T. Cook was having the the problems with his um, carpal tunnel. He would have been out of pipe making. He would have been working for years with these splints on his hands, which I think he still wears. I believe it was maybe Chuck Stanion that that headed an effort to raise the funds to get J.T. Cook the surgeries. And Paul Tatum and I teamed together and did a seven-day set Uh, of tampers he did three tampers i did three tampers and then he did the bottom half of the tamper and i finished it off doing the top half it sold on ebay which where everything was selling for this uh, fundraising effort for seventeen or eighteen hundred dollars so i always figure we probably from what i based it on did a finger or two for jt's uh, hands (laughs) and you know he's phenomenal pipe maker and still making wonderful pipes today and it was just an honor to be able to help out.
0: Mean Kahuna is coming up on its 10-year anniversary, which you must be very proud. Uh, What can we expect from Mean Kahuna in the future?
1: (laughs) I wish I knew. (laughs) I've just got so many different things in in the works. I think I'm looking at doing, going back to some some shapes that I haven't done a lot of in the past few years. A lot of my work is actually locked in a very unstable computer that I have to actually go in very carefully and pull out uh, JPEGs. So, you know, that's where unfortunately it wasn't on discs. So I'm going to go back and pull those out and do some of the shapes that I haven't done for a while and update them. Uh, do tampers with the brass tips that used to be on all of my tampers, which some people really do enjoy, especially if they put the wrong end in the pipe. Well, I'm definitely going to be doing a, the first series for Kaze Tamp, which is based on the Florida Keys. Some palm trees that I set under on a recent trip down there a couple of weeks ago. I'm just naming them after various keys and a whole chain of tampers, mostly done in Keneal. And I'm also looking at increasing my efforts with Ming Destiny with the full-size sculpture, which um, I hope to be doing some shows here in Atlanta, continuing to sell them around the world, which is something the, the pipe world doesn't get to see, but I, I, I like to keep it separate. Um, but what I'm doing again with that is taking shapes that I've done with Ming Kahuna and bringing it up to full-size sculpture. And the plays back and forth, so it's actually a lot of fun. And and just um, continuing to you know do what I can to to work with people and you know do my best work yet.
0: That sounds great, Art. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking out the time to sit down with us and, and talk about your amazing artistic work. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. And that was episode six, a chat with Art Rupel of Ming Kahuna. You can find beautiful Ming Kahuna tampers online at Ming-Kahuna.com. That's M-I-N-G dash dot com. Art's work is truly stunning. Check out his site today and start or expand your very own Ming Kahuna collection. This podcast was sponsored by the Atlanta Pipe Club, my personal home away from home, where friends are family. Follow the link for the Atlanta Pipe Club on our Pipe Clubs page to get more info on upcoming meetings and events. I hope you had fun. Let's do this again real soon. Until then, I'm Oli with oompal.com, wishing you the best of luck in deciding which minkahuna will be next in your collection.